Good afternoon and uh, welcome to Voices from the Middle. I'm uh, very excited to be able to talk to a colleague and friend, Mark Elliott, who came all the way from Cleveland, Ohio. We won't hold that against him to, uh, to talk with us today. And I've known Mark for a while, but Mark has a very distinguished career. He's spent uh, 30 years uh, in the talent management, consulting and uh, executive search business. He's been a speaker at national uh, conferences. He's uh, published a number of articles. He's uh, very generous with his time and he's just very generous in character. He's somebody that really does care about people. And I think what's made him successful, as you'll see besides what he knows, is just who he is as a person and as uh, and the character that he, just, that he uh, exhibits. So I'm just very excited. I've learned a lot from Mark uh, and uh, I don't mind continuing to learn from him. So I'm glad he can share uh, with us today, some of his background. Why don't you start at the beginning? I mean, I know we've talked, you've explained to me a little bit about your background at yeah. General Electric. Yeah. And as a young guy, I was, I was kind of curious. I can't imagine, well, maybe, you know, you were sitting there plotting in Cleveland, like how to get the hell out of there and or uh, I, I think maybe I'll be a, a, a manager for General Electric. I mean, was it deliberate like that or, or what happened to, that you ended up at General Electric? And um, I'm, That's a great question. And, and it, it is truly why I said one of my frames of reference goes all the way back to that beginning. Yeah. I come out of college and I had really good advice. I had a number of offers in, in, in even a couple of different business directions as to where my career would go, sales and marketing or into management or whatever. Um, I had a guidance counselor at my university who said, you ought to take the GE offer. And the GE office offer was to go into human resources. And, and she went on to say, and the reason is because at least at that time, GE was known and widely respected for its management development. And, and, and so, um, I, knowing that I, knowing what I didn't know, you know, coming out of college with a business degree, you, you, you don't step up and automatically start a management role. And, and so knowing the GE had um, what I then experienced were three different ways to aggressively develop management talent within the organization. One way was um, uh, fast uh, intentional, fast career opportunity advancement. Um, another way was on-the-job training, and another way was um, cl what I'd call classic classroom training at GE's Corporate Institute, Development Institute. And so let me go back for a second. So I said rapid advancement. I was with GE for eight years. <laughs> And in those eight years, I was um, moved once laterally and promoted four times. And while that was going on, they were providing on-the-job development. They held my boss accountable and his boss accountable for developing me as a manager in each one of my each one of my roles. Then they would send you, if you were fortunate, you would be identified and sent to this corporate development institute, and you would get one or two weeks a year of highly intense, structured, um, I'll call it competition, against some of the, the best talent in GE's world, all of its businesses worldwide. And, and you would be there and you'd be part of panel discussions. You'd be part of one-on-one -on -one, um, competitions, I called them. 
I'm mm-hmm. very competitive. I call them competitions. Sure. And, and, and so, and then at the same time, because it was GE, they provided tuition refund. And so I went for, I did my master's degree work in organizational development while making that lateral move and making all of those um, promotions in that eight year time frame. Um, one of the things that I, I like to look back on is, is that um, I was married and, and still am, by the way, that's a miracle. <laughs> I still am. Um, but the fact of the matter is that my wife knew that after 12 or 18 months that she should stop buying canned goods for the pantry because she knew GE was going to move you again. And, and if you were still identified as developable and, and talented, that kind of intentional, proactive, we're going to make managers, we're going to make senior leaders, and we're going to do it with this on-the-job training, we're going to do it with this exposure to a, a number of different functional and, and uh, functional assignments. So like I was in my case, I was in human resources. And so they intentionally said, okay, if you've got the compensation and benefits experience, we're now going to move you to recruiting. Then we're going to move you to talent development. Then we're, you know, and so within your, your career functional area, that was all assessed, evaluated and intentional. And, and, and then they would say, we're also going to move you intentionally to different businesses because managing or leading in a different business is different. It's not the, yes, it's about people and yes, it's about motivating, but it's different in the nature of a business. And so in that um, eight years that I was with GE, I was in four different businesses. And and as I think back as to what they were, um, intentionally again, they were, um, a defense and military business, which was a cost plus environment. So here's a business that's manufacturing um, torpedoes and missiles and tanks in a cost plus contract basis with the government. Then another business I was fortunate to be in was GE Lighting. And um, lighting uh, doesn't say what those of us uh, outside of GE called it. We called it light bulbs, but they called it GE lighting business. And that was a cash cow business. Why was that a cash cow? Well, they were making, if you can imagine, millions of 60 to 100 watt light bulbs. And the primary component was sand. (laughs) And so they're selling them as fast as they can off of the shelves in retail establishments, and they're making them out of sand. And so that was a cash cow business. And then there was a high volume, low profit margin business like major appliances. And so you you could go on with that. And and each one of those, because of the nature of its business, if it's low profit margin, that puts different pressure on you as a manager and as somebody leading that business at any level, because it's low profit margin compared to when you're in lighting and you're making all kinds of profits because of the margin being so great between a finished light bulb and sand. You know, I never asked you this before. Did you ever think about getting into general management or did you want to stay in that functional area? Um, They didn't they didn't let you think that way. Uh Everything was designed to, to grow general managers out of any function. And in fact, I hadn't thought about this recently, uh, but when I got into executive search,
research, I used what I had learned, any number of things I'd learned at General Electric. And so that's why I, I said that's one of my frames of reference I wanted to start because it was so foundational in my own management development. And then as a model for how I think about the rest of the world. And so um, as, as, as when I went into senior management and went into senior leadership positions, I, I wanted to do that same approach to how do you identify and develop talent in your organization. And by the way, that was an annual process within every GE business where they, they identified and uh, um, evaluated and assessed every professional and every manager in the company every year. And then identified the developmental needs or actions that you could take that would keep that person, if, if they were capable, I mean, people fell off. It, it's a pyramid, right? And it gets narrower at the top. And um, it, so if you were capable of continuing to go up, um, they, they would keep doing this assessment, keep identifying actions for your development. And the key piece, the key piece, a lot of organizations do that. The key piece was they then made it a commitment and a requirement for each of those professionals and each of those managers, their boss, to be have that be part of the performance screen of the boss for their annual performance evaluation that they carried through on those identified developmental actions. Um, GE would would pick different types of leaders for each of its different business needs. Now, I said, so I, I, I told you it was cash cow business, right. all of this, there's high tech and innovative businesses and all of that. So if a business like GE Lighting was a cash cow and it needed a general manager, if in fact the strategy was we need to develop some high tech lighting products, not just this sand stuff anymore, but we need to have sodium vapor and high intensity quartz and screw in fluorescence and all of those next level technology. We need to put a scientist on top of that business as a general manager to, to create a culture for invention right. and innovation. Previously, the person who was there before was probably somebody who came up through finance and understood how to get every last dollar out of, out of that business. And then likewise, if you now have developed new products because you had that scientist, the next time you need a general manager for that business or a business going through that life cycle, mm -hmm. and that was the point, matching life cycle of a business, its business strategy and its market needs with the talent of the person you're putting in. So if you'd had a scientist and now you need a general manager, you need somebody who understands process improvement right. and can make those things and make them really profitably. And then guess what? Now it becomes a cash cow again and you need a finance person to. to, to. So that that was the life cycle matching of leadership talent that they grew. And that's why that talent came from every function. I understand. Let me ask you, you know, you talk about this now uh, in a very vivid way. And it was probably 30, 35 years ago. Um, it's, I guess it's still that's still how you see the world. And it would still be a way that you think is a healthy way to develop people. What would you say? What, what what advice would you give to people that are in their career now, maybe early to midpoint, based on this understanding of the GE way? Well, so a couple of things. If I'm in middle management, how do I keep moving up and, and how do I get ahead and become a senior leader? And, and uh, you and I joked, the answer is, well, there's a 10 point answer. Everybody wants lists of 10. Right. I, I think it started with Moses and the 10 commandment, <laughs> but, but everybody wants a list of this 10. This is your Moses. Is a, That's right. right. And, and so I, I, I frustrate them a little bit by saying the first eight are performance. So on that list of 10 things to do to make sure you're on an upward track to be promoted and, and to keep moving upward, 
the first eight are performance and, and they're different kinds of performance. So there are things like um, performance to expectation, performance beyond expectation. Performance as an individual, performance leading a team, making the team better. It's performance to the standard way that everybody's always done it. And you have the expected or better than expected results. It's performance having invented a new way or, or it's, it's performance where you've identified other best practices that maybe that business isn't using. And, and so you're getting performance by using a best practice. Or it's that performance because you've invented a whole nother way of doing it, a creative way of getting at it. So I don't know if that's the eight, but there, there are eight segments like that of a fine tuning of get results. It's the ticket to dance. You're not going anywhere unless it's a family owned business and you're in the family. If you don't get those eight levels of performance, um, then the, the last two on that list of 10 are to have the right mentor. And again, so you said, what should somebody in middle management do? Well, you can wait for somebody to offer to be your mentor. I wouldn't suggest that. I'd suggest identifying somebody and asking them to be your mentor. And the right mentor is somebody who has the political clout in the organization, somebody who cares about the development of people in the organization, has a, um, a, a benevolent approach to, I'll take this extra time, unless the organization is progressive and assigns mentors, but most don't. And, and, and so it's going down the hall and walking in an office of somebody that you've been watching for a year or whatever and saying, I've learned a lot by watching you. And I could learn a lot more if you were my mentor, if you would coach me and mentor me. Okay. So first eight on that list of 10 were performance. Right. Then it's having the right mentor. And the last one I believe is being a little bit different. And that is um, in, in organizations that have a lot of talent, GE had a lot of talent and it was very competitive. And as I said, it's a narrow pyramid at the top. Um, so people fall by the wayside or they, they get evaluated as no longer promotable or not general manager material or whatever. Um, and, and so, you know, that, that being a little bit different causes you to stand out. Where, that, where I learned that was there, there was a, a guy that I was replacing on one of my promotions. And when I was walking into my new office, he was cleaning out his office. He'd been promoted and was going somewhere else. And he had a bubble gum machine on his desk with a tray of pennies. <laughs> and, and I said, so tell me about the bubble gum machine, right? And he said, well, this is really cool. He said, senior managers come in all day and executives come in all day long and take pennies out of there and get gumballs. And while they're here, I talk to them. You know, I ask them about their golf game or I ask them, you know, what was their path to the top or whatever those topics are. And I got really known. And guess what? I'm now promoted. Okay. So he said, so being a little bit different, you know, is, is a real key. So what did I do? Well, at that time, I worked in GE lighting and GE used to make sun lamps. And, and so in my office, I had maintenance install a bank of sun lamps over the chairs across from my office. And senior executives came in and sat and wanted to get a tan. <laughs> Okay. So, you know, I'm not suggesting that everybody now run out and try to find sun, find sun lamps because I think they've been outlawed or something, right. you know, you know, as being not healthy. But um, again, it worked. 
I, I got people that I never would have had that kind of time and interface with to come in and shoot the breeze. You know, and say, hey, how did you wind up in this office and what gave you the eye? You know, and, and go from there. And so in eight years, I was moved once laterally and promoted four times um, before I got recruited away. I want to go back to that recruited away, but um, go back to about finding the mentor. That sounds easy. E- it seems easier said than done. So here I am in my career. I'm ambitious. Uh, I'm a, you know, I, I want to move forward. But how the heck do you find somebody that's willing to give you the time and, uh, and make that happen? It, it helps. Yeah, I, I'm not I'm not sure. I, you know, this is an interview, so I don't have planned answers. Yeah. And, and so I'm, I'm not sure that there there's a uh, an answer that I could give that would match everybody. And, and what I mean by that a little bit is um, Vince Lombardi was a, 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 a famous, you know, Hall of Fame football coach. And yet you could you couldn't analyze how he did what he did as a coach and try to make that fit you if you became the next coach. Okay. So I can only speak from personal experience. Please. And by the way, I wasn't a Vince Lombardi. <laughs> okay. Um, I figured uh, that. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, uh, the, the picking of the mentor was, um, first of all, you, again, if, if you want to be identified. So when you go to this person and say, I want you and your time, you have to have earned some of that already. Right. And you've earned some of that already by differentiating yourself by you're going through all this on the job training, you're moving quickly and you're saying, you know, GE's got tuition refund. I'm going to go for a master's degree. And, and to, to be able to manage work and, and that development and manage home life and all of those other things, um, that that's a major commitment at that stage of your life. And somebody who's looking at it sees that you, that's a major commitment. The other thing was things like um, asking for more. You know, uh, you know, God help you if they actually listen and give you more. But but it was things like it was offering to be involved in something and making the case that it would be developmental, that you weren't being a suck up or you weren't just trying to, you know, whatever those terms are. But it was like, um, I know that we are active in the community. You know, GE was, you know, had a community activity. Um, And I'd like to know how I can volunteer to be part of that. And guess what? The person, the manager who was responsible for that was one potential mentor. Because you didn't wait to be asked, will you volunteer? You went forward and said, I, I, I want to do this. I understand how, the, how good it is to do this, you know, for all the right reasons, all of that. And now that's, that's a potential mentor. Another potential mentor is your boss, of course. Um, and, and so if you've got a good boss and, you know, and you can go down the list. So how do you find a mentor? It's one thinking that you should, you know, thinking that way. Right. And then like anything else in life, um, you, you try to identify who are the stars uh, and who could who could if I sp- spent my time which was rare. I was married and had young children and all of that. And if this person who I'm going to is going to spend his or her time, how does that mesh? Why is it worth it for them? Why is it worth it for me? And you have to be able to answer that question by who you pick. So in your course at at, uh, your tenure at GE, how many mentors would you say that you had? And what stood out for you as somebody that was a good mentor? 
Um, that was that's really interesting. Um, I had one overall mentor mm -hmm. because when I got recruited to GE out of college, I, I went on a GE at the time had a number of programs and the programs were like master's degrees. Um, one was for manufacturing management. One was for finance management. One was for human resources and, and another for marketing and sales. And so I got picked for the human resources program. And, and so you have somebody at the top of that program at corporate who's pulling strings and watching your career and part of that annual evaluation and all of that kind of thing. And then every time I went into one of those new businesses, I had to very quickly establish that I was going to be a resource that I was going to be an asset and that I was going to work really hard. And, and, um, it wasn't about, Hey, hey I'm here. And I, I'm thinking already about my next promotion. It's I'm going to be totally focused on whatever time I'm here. I'm going to make the best commitment and the best outcomes for the, the job I'm in. And when you did that, people watched because again, the culture was one of every year they had to assess talent. It was part of their accountability. Right. Right. So they're watching the minute you come in and, um, and, and so you, you took advantage of that. Again, you looked for the match on, on who was going to be, if not your boss, who was going to be a good mentor. Quick story. One of the other things that, and, and I hope there are companies out there like GE was then today. And what I meant by that is, uh, so I said there was this leadership development institute that if you got picked, if you were fortunate to get picked, you would go to for a week or two during the course of, of a year. Is this a Crotonville? Crotonville. Okay. Croton on the Hudson. Okay. Upstate New York. Um, and you go there and people have been picked from all over the world to come to this one or two week gig and forgive the gig. I, I'm a consultant. I, I think in terms, forgive. Uh, yes. Um, you'd come for that time period and you would be put on panels for panel discussions. You'd be put in one-on-one -on -one competitions. Right. They didn't call them competitions, but that's what it was. And they had, they didn't just have the person who was leading that Institute there. They had handpicked significant senior leaders from across the country that were across the world who were going to come and watch you and evaluate how you handled yourself during the week or two weeks. They were, they were given assessment tools, evaluation tools. Back in the dark ages, they did sensitivity training. And I don't mean sensitive, like be kind to animals. This was some people cried and got in their cars and left. It, it was so I, I, I think of one classic moment during one of those weeks, I was in a, a debate, a one on one debate, and there was a panel watching the debate. And the guy I was debating was his name was and still is Bob Wright. And um, nice enough guy. And we had this really good debate and there wasn't supposed to necessarily be a winner, but I'm competitive and I wanted to win. Of course. OK, well, Bob Wright went on to be the chairman and CEO of one of the GE businesses called National Broadcasting Corporation. OK, so I, I tell a small that company. Yeah, so, NBC, I, yeah. so I tell that story not not to say that um, I, gee, I must have terribly underachieved. I'd like to, I'd prefer to say he really overachieved. <laughs> OK, but I mean, it was that kind of, you know, you, you, you lost to a worthy opponent. Yeah, I, I mean, early in our careers, there's this guy, Bob Wright, and I get put in a situation where I get to debate against him. Mm -hmm. OK, and that did, that was proactive and intentional. Those are the kind of words I keep using about how they saw the company's um, requirement and commitment to develop management talent. Let me ask you. Uh, 
Do you see anything like that? Fast forward now uh, in your career, you've been, again, different places, uh, senior positions, senior executive positions in media, uh, in uh, technology, et cetera. Uh, I don't want to say you've been around the block, but you know what I mean? <laughs> I can't hold a job. <laughs> so do you see anything like that anymore? Any, that same kind of intentionality or commitment to development that you saw at GE? Um, you know, I, I don't want to glamorize it. Yeah, you know, everybody's got I, I was, ju- was just going to say, um, well, one, I was going to start off by saying, I hope so. I, I don't have enough experience, um, modern day, present day experience that except the, my, my client base. And, and while my client base ha- has been in a number of different industries and all of that, it's everything from privately held family businesses to, to multi-gazillion dollar technology companies. And, and so a family business, you don't find it. You know, some of the middle companies, if you go to the Fortune 500 and you're going down the list, um, you find um, uh, attempts. You find some um, enhancements of old ways of doing things. So, like you know, I, I, I said I was going to talk to you about some other frames of reference I have. Yeah, one please. of them being executive search, and then one of them being onboarding coaching. Um, it takes me into those environments, and so I will see where when I say I have this onboarding support, they'll say, "Well, we already have a pretty significant onboarding process for our, our middle managers and, and our upper blah blah blah." And I, so I get exposure to that. Um, And of course, there's tuition refunded in many, many companies. And and, um, it takes the initiative to go, you know, so you you said earlier in your questions, you said, what should a middle manager do? And I, I keep saying, don't sit and wait. You know, it's don't look political and don't just be all about career growth. Be about being the best you can be in your current situation. But that also means identifying a mentor, volunteering for other the things I've talked about. Right. Okay. Right. Taking advantage of tuition refund. You know, self-development is the the, the, the only assured development. Right. Right. You know, otherwise, you're waiting for a company to provide development to you. Right. All right. As a quick aside, just to wrap up GE, why did you leave? Um, I, I got a, a company came I, at the time I was responsible for 14 GE lighting plants, human resources responsibility for 14 GE lighting plants all around the United States. And um, some company wanted to come in and install an incentive program like a gain sharing. And everybody had approved it all the way up. And when it got to me, I shot it down. And so they sent a corporate vice president from St. Louis, where the company was headquartered, is headquartered. Um, and he sat down with me and he said, you're killing us. You know, we, we wanted to show that we could do this in GE and have a success and all of that. And I said, well, yeah, I understand that's your need. And my need is not to have you have a failure in one of my plants that happens to be non-union. And, and you know, and one of my objectives is that we're, we're pro-employee. We're not anti-union. We're pro-employee. I, I want, like it to stay where I... I don't upset the employee workforce by having an incentive plan that fails. And so the long and the short of it is I didn't improve, uh, approve it. I was six months from a pension with General Electric. And that corporate executive um, called me. Some weeks went by and he called me and he said, everything you said that was negative about our approach, he said, upon reflection, it's all valid. And so we want to hire you to fix it. And so six months short of a pension with GE, I left to go do that and and, um, didn't look back. So take that for a lesson learned for our audience. So in terms of navigating your career, 
as a manager, when when do you leave and when do you stay? I, I, I know there's it, it depends. It's, a, it's an yeah, awkward question, yeah. but any any kind of insight there as to well, it's, it, it, again, so the depends for me would have been um, I. I had been told, so it wasn't self-assessment. I had been told that I was general manager material and I was going to keep being on what my wife called the merry-go-round, you know, of this every 12 to 18 months, maybe 24 months, continue to move to a different business for more experience and, and to be, get ready. Um, we had young children, as you said, in the ups, the introduction, you said, I'm from Cleveland. We were living everywhere, but Cleveland. And, um, and my wife had grown up in the same house that she was born in and went to college from. And now six times in eight years, we moved Gotcha. in our as early married couple. And so now we had young kids. And so she just basically said, you know, if you can get us off this merry-go-round, get us back to Cleveland, let us establish some roots, blah, blah, blah. And, and so basically the, the whole rest of my career was Cleveland-based. I would often go there for clean clothes, you know, because I was still traveling the world and all of that kind of stuff. But at least I had my family back where they had family roots. So that was the logic. Very good. Mark, I want to go back to something we've talked about and uh, might be a little bit out of sequence, but... You and I know each other in part because of the work that you do as an executive coach now, focusing on onboarding. And I want to talk about that for a little bit here. And here, here's the situation as I see it. So as we're in companies, obviously people come, people go. And in terms of people taking on a new job, they could currently be working inside the company as a long-term employee. Uh, they might take a lateral position. It might be a move up. Uh, you could be bring, bringing in people from the outside. But the point is that I think people underestimate the challenges of making a transition, of, of doing something new. And um, it, it's almost like um, in golf, like it's uh, assuming that taking on a new job is like a, a two-foot putt. It's a gimme. Oh, yeah, you know, you've been here for eight years. You're taking a lateral move. Sure, you just go ahead and do it. And or we're bringing somebody in and, yeah, we'll, we'll make nice to them and take them out, t- take them to the cafeteria, show them around for two weeks. And that's their onboarding. But I think we totally uh, underestimate how critical that is. And I know you spent many, many years in this, so I'm preaching to the choir. But talk to me a little bit about your interest in, uh, in onboarding, how you got into this business. And then we can talk about what you're doing to support people in the onboarding um, the transition uh, moves that they make. Great. It, it's one of my favorite topics, so I'm glad to go there. Um, it's, it's interesting. Uh, again, I, I go back to that foundational experience at GE. GE at the time in the late 60s, forgive me, in the late 1960s, um, had a, a process that I don't think anybody else in the country had, and that was called new manager assimilation. And at the time, and, and they primarily promoted from within. So automatically you could say, well, why does somebody need to be helped assimilating when, when they're already got the GE logo on their exactly, chest and exactly. all of that kind of thing? Well, and the answer was, um, again, a little bit of what I said earlier, you went to so many different kinds of businesses. So GE was a conglomerate of very, very different businesses. And so to think that you knew the culture going from GE Lighting to a high tech business or something like GE Finance or you know something like that, they wouldn't possibly think that way. So they had a process called new manager assimilation, which was where a human resources person um, met with the newly picked 
general manager of that business or whatever that senior level position was and would say to that person, I'm going to be um, somebody that helps you get up to speed quickly. Now, understand this was the, the dark ages, the, the, the ink, you know, the, just the embryonic stage of what onboarding is about. What they would do is that HR person, human resources person would meet with the team that that new manager was or, or leader was going to lead and meet with them for about a half a day and say, OK, what's the person walking into? What are the sacred cows? What, what, what are the things that the previous manager did that you'd like to see continued? What are some of the things that have been going on here that you'd like instantly stopped? What are the big challenges and on and on and on, okay? And then the human resources professional would sit down and debrief with that newly appointed leader and say, here's what I found out and spend half a day doing that. And so back then, that transition management and that in integration into a new business, and again, transition was often a geographic move that today could even be international. Okay, it wasn't just moving from um, uh, aircraft engine outside of Boston to, you know, appliances in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, it could be international today. And so helping manage that transition of family and job, maybe going to a first time ever job. So if you've never been a CFO and now they're making you, giving you a promotion to a CFO role, um, et cetera. So having that, um, that support system, which, which at the time was this total of one day, okay? <laughs> but it was, it was um, embryonic and it was um, earth shaking in its impact. And you, the new leader knew that he or she still had to find those things out for themselves, but they had this instant leg up, this jump start, by having had this shared, here's everything that people are going to tell you over a period of time, but we've compressed that period of time. Okay. So then when I got into executive search, I understood that, and I'd read, answer your question, it said, um, there are decades of research, published research, on how even the most talented people who get to a certain level or get into a, a certain different culture or whatever um, uh, fail, that something derails them. And, and so we, we look at people and say, well, gee, I've moved seven times and blah, 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 and I've been successful. Why do you think I need support? Exactly. Well, the first part of that answer is because there's too much at risk. You know, you're, you're internalizing and thinking, well, I don't see any risk because I've been successful all those times. Well, but I, who am running a business, see a risk in that if you turn out to be a bad fit, okay, you could drive away talent on our current team who don't like working for you or with you. We could, because you're stumbling and because you're, you're having some things slow you down or you're tripping over things because suddenly the job has gotten much more complex or the technology is new to you or the business is new to you, um, whatever those things are, we could be missing business opportunities in the marketplace. We could be coming in and not meeting shareholder expectations. We, you know, there are all kinds of significant costs of somebody having what I'll say is more than a hiccup during their transition and integration into a new leadership role. So first, it's you don't want the carnage of somebody who's had a great career suddenly having that career come to a dashing, you know, a, a, an end because they crashed and burned. And you also just know all those other things that are at risk 
by you not proactively managing a support process to keep that person from self-destructing. And as I said, there are decades of research that show a dozen or more common missteps and mistakes that even the most experienced and most talented people make in senior leadership positions. Um, We talk again, this is supposed to be voices from the middle. And so my onboarding not only works with senior level executives, but it goes down to middle managers. And, And the reason for that is, if you think about the reality of the workplace in most organizations, if somebody gets promoted into a low level supervisory or management position, they often have got gotten prepared for that. The company got them prepared and even sometimes continues to provide support so they don't stumble. And if you look at senior executives, they get high priced executive coaches, right? You know, and so there's no question about, gee, um, do, why do I need a coach? You know, they all want them. And the corporations recognize the value proposition of what's at risk and what's at stake. And so senior level executives get coaches. And the person we're calling this middle management, well, I'll tell you, middle being in middle management is literally being caught in the middle (laughs) because you don't get either of those attention support processes. You don't get an executive coach because they don't think the value proposition justifies the expense of a coach for a middle level manager. And you don't get that preparation. You know, it could be a long time since you've had any professional development in your career, whereas that person entering management probably just got some recent professional development to get them ready for that first entry level into management. So um, I see it as critical that there be a support structure and a process that helps um, transitioning and integration, which I call onboarding, um, of middle level managers as well as senior executives. Makes all the sense. I have to ask you, you've, I know uh, our audience doesn't know that you've had senior level positions working for Fortune 100 companies, C-level positions, C-suite level positions. And, and, I know, and at the same time, I know that you've spent the last 20 plus years developing a software system and a set of processes to help people make, make these transitions. Why? I mean, you've, got, you've had big jobs and it seems like of all the stuff that you've done, you could have kept doing that and yet you kind of stopped and said, this is so important to me. I'm going to spend a lot of time and a lot of money developing, focusing on this transition issue. Say more about that. I'd like to take credit that you just gave me for it. Um, Yes, it's been that time frame. Yes, it's been a long time and a lot of money invested. Um, I can tell you that where it came from, the genesis of it was my, my executive clients. And so if I was providing onboarding support to a senior executive as part of my recruiting process, so that was the first step, recruiters often just say, congratulations, you got the job, and they call you, they call you three weeks or four weeks into the job to make sure you haven't been fired yet and suggest that we have lunch and see how it's going. I stayed for months on site, I would come back and make sure that the the new client, the client was keeping his or her commitments to the new manager, new executive. I was making sure that all those things about cultural fit, getting off to a a solid start, all of those things were playing out and, and happening. So when I was doing that, and when clients were experiencing the value of it, because they'd never had that before in most of those organizations, uh, most organizations that say they have an onboarding process, um, today, more often than not, that's a slightly enhanced orientation program. Right. And so I was coaching a senior executive in a large bank 
um, a banking organization in Orange County, California. And when I went there to have one of my coaching sessions with her, I asked the CEO, um, where is she? And he said, well, we have her in teller training. And I said, but she's not a teller. She's the chief chief financial officer and chief information officer of this multi-gazillion dollar company. Why is she in teller training? And he said, well, that's where we talk about our corporate culture and our values. And that's the only thing we have. So we don't have anything that we could provide to managers. And so we figured better give her something. <laughs> OK, All so right. so my definition of onboarding is that it's not an enhanced orientation process. What it is, is it's a, uh, and it's not something that just the company provides. It's a shared responsibility between the new manager or new executive and the organization. It's responsibility that goes for three to five months. Because a lot of things will play out in that three to five months that, that, that can trip somebody up. And so let's provide a support structure. Let's help them navigate the path that we know they're going to take. Again, there are decades of experience that are re researched and reported. So we know that over the next three, four, five months, here are the things that a new manager, a new leader is going to have to deal with. And then how do we make sure that they navigate that skillfully? And so we don't assume that they have the best practice skills. We don't assume that they have the emotional intelligence because so much of it is emotional intelligence based. And as you, know, as you know from doing assessments and evaluation, you can get at pretty quickly, even a, 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 an executive search consultant can pretty quickly get at from somebody's resume, do you have the technical or functional expertise my client needs? But it's a whole bunch more difficult to determine whether they have the emotional intelligence and the toolkit of best practices in leadership or management. And, and, and so to make sure that the person does by giving them a support structure. So to answer your question, who's doing all of that, that three, four, five months of support and all of this, and, and everybody was having great outcomes. Nobody was being fired. People were, were happy. And they said, we, we need the same stuff to be driven down the management organization, but we can't afford you. And there's only one of you. You know, it's we, we understand it's valuable, but we can't justify the, the cost of an executive coach down at mid-level management. So they said, why don't you use technology to package, package your coaching and the consulting and the best practices and all of that? And the person can use it 24 seven, you know, and get a whole bunch. Let's call it the 80, 20 of what they would get if they had a live coach. Um, and so that's what we did. So we developed a program called Power Start. Power Start is now used globally. Uh, it has been used um, not just one time by somebody who got recruited into an organization, but they come back. And when they get promoted to the next level of management, they say, I want to use that program again. And, and often with executive coaching, sometimes the coaches are inside the organization. Sometimes they're contracted from outside the organization. It isn't all me. Um, but this program that I developed is now used by coaches across the country. It's used in all kinds of environments. And it's, it's about reducing the risk. And even for those that say, well, there's no risk. I'm not going to fail. Right. OK. And, and even the clients that would say that say that say, well, we spend a lot of time assessing and evaluating this person and they've got a golden resume. So we don't think they're going to fail. So I would say, well, how would you like their contribution to be made faster? How would you like there to be no stumbles? How would you like there to be no missteps or mistakes? And, and how would you like that person to almost be guaranteed to be successful? Call it insurance. 
I'm, I said here, very happy to tell you, my grandkids are happy to tell you that the online program is licensed frequently and widely, um, that my coaching, I, I still, as you pointed out, at this late stage of my career, um, I'm still working full time and coaching executives. And it's not because I'm out there marketing. It is self-sustaining because of its value proposition. You know, if you look at what's compared to, I, I love to go, I look at on, online things that pop up on, in my inbox and it says, 30 minutes to train your your managers. Right. And I go, give me a break. Nobody's going to get trained to be a good manager or, or to, to follow a successful onboarding integration transition. Um, nobody's going to get that out of a 30-minute video. Mark, the other thing is, um, we've talked about this before, that people think that they can do it themselves. As a manager, I manage a finance department or an operations center. Well, I'll just onboard Bill. And I, <laughs> what's your response to that? Well, two things. One, the approach that we put together creates a support team. And so if there's an outside coach, that's part of the team. If it's just using the the online program, that, that's a, a structural piece of the support. And then the boss has a role to play. If there's a mentor or an HR human resources advisor, they have a role to play. And by the way, that's all built into the online program to make it easy for those people in that support network to provide the support. So the, the, the specific answer is, I would hope, one, I would hope if, some, if a manager says, well, I'm going to onboard the person myself, I I would say, well, where do you get the expertise to do that? Because it is, it's not just coaching, it's consulting. It's the best practices that have been established with decades of research. And and so not to put down the manager, the boss, because the boss has a role to play, but that you would ask, well, isn't there stuff you're supposed to be doing, you know, that, that is more in your, your accountabilities and, and what you're trying to achieve than taking time out? Yes, you're still going to be involved and you have a, a, a key role as the person's boss to support their onboarding and their success. But the process is one that is also has a significant role for a coach, somebody with the expertise, somebody with the experience. Right. So what you did, what I heard you say to kind of summarize is that you that you developed the software reflecting on what you had done in the executive search business and kind of, uh, uh, well, what did I say? Just, again, looking at the lessons learned that from uh, your role there and and uh, automated the system. Absolutely. And then taking, taking the available research because the research says, here are the dozen common, keyword common, all caps, common missteps and mistakes that senior leaders are at risk of making. One of them, for example, is trying to do too much too soon. One of them is thinking that they can go in and ignore um, mainstays of the culture that they're walking into or or um, the, the trite way of saying throw the baby out with the bathwater if they've been told we want you to come in and keep evolving our culture. OK, and then there's a list of a dozen things like this, not doing things fast enough, living with status quo too long. And so what we did with the online program and with the coaching process is reverse engineer it. That was we right. said if, the, if these are the 12 common missteps or mistakes that people make, what if we kept them from making them? What if we didn't just flash a warning sign that said, don't take on too much too soon? You know, the organization can't handle all of that. It doesn't have the processes and the people are overwrought and all of that. Instead of just flashing the warning sign, what if we said, here's how to take on that challenge? And what if we incorporated the best practices for doing that? 
What if we then made action steps that that new manager should be following and had the boss provide reinforcement, provide input to the person doing that? So, for example, one of the one of the courses is on leading change and everybody's supposed to change things when they get into a new role. Right. Of course. Um, How do you do that in a best practices way? And so the best practices are outlined in the online video. Coaches add value to it by making it real to the situation. Um, and then the boss has a role where he follows up and the, the new person is supposed to use the best practices to lay out the change they want to implement and all of that. And then it says, meet with your boss first, get your boss's input, and then go ahead and implement the change. And so warning about... Um, don't do, don't change too many things. Don't, you know, warning's nice and there are warnings built in, but it says, here's the best practice way to do that. Right. Yeah. As I'm listening to you and I'm I'm thinking the theme of, uh, you know, for people who are in the middle and, you know, what can we learn from all this is that there's, I think people who are in the middle of their career, uh, they might, some of them might be doing, making some of the mistakes I've made, which is to say, I hear what you're saying and I can assume that I already know that. I already do that. It's kind of like, again, as I said, it's quote common sense. But when you're really, you know, in the middle of things, it's not so much common sense. And so this is a way of getting, so for people in the middle, this is a way of getting, uh, it's like an online mentor. So you find somebody that can mentor you in the real world, all the better. But for folks that don't have that, this is a way of getting help rather than just coming uh, relying on ourselves saying, oh, I already know that I can do this myself. That's my mistake. Michael, it's, it's that. And then it's some additional pieces. And that is even somebody who may have experienced best practices along the way. Well, as they said, well, I've done this seven times. Okay, guess what? They're now cutting corners on those best practices they're they're now. And and if you if you remind them that and the program reminds them. And so what a lot of executives have said to me, and um, I always find it interesting when I I coach people in New York and New Jersey, you know, or California and and they they, from large markets like that. And they come from sophisticated, big organizations and and they say, um, I, I know all of this stuff. And they say that sight unseen without seeing the coaching regimen or anything else. <laughs> right. And then the feedback they give me is, you know, the honest ones, they say this was a really good reminder and kept, and gave me the structure to make sure I touched all the bases as I went around and, and, and that I didn't cut corners. And then the even more honest ones will say, and by the way, I learned a lot that I didn't know in terms of best practices, because what I had been doing that when I said I've been successful for five or six or seven other moves, that doesn't mean I was as successful as I could have been. That doesn't mean I got up to speed as fast as I could have. That doesn't mean I I didn't do one of those missteps or more than one of those missteps. I survived it. Okay, and this thing tells me how I, I like to say it to people. How would you like to wow people? in everything you do for the first three or four months in a new management role. And that's what the feedback is. People will, you know, because I roam around organizations, people will say, the new guy is really good or the new woman is really good. She did this. And I don't say, well, she did that because it was in the program and guided her, you know. Um, but but that's the point. And, and um, it's all about not just mistake avoidance or misstep avoidance. It's for sure it's that. But it's about taking somebody who's good and making them better and making sure that they they don't cut corners and, and that they wow people all along the way. Let's use that wow people along the way as a transition to the next point, which is for people who are ambitious in the middle 
maybe they're maybe they're at the point in their career where they've had a successful career and they aspire to the C-suite positions. Any kind of advice that you would give to people, um, or maybe it's the same advice, you know, this the eight performance tips and then the, the the you know, be different and find a mentor. Is there anything else that kind of stands out for you? If, uh, yeah, if- don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, I don't want to say that you're selling your soul to the devil, but um, the world has changed dramatically. And, and what I mean by that in terms of the, the expectations on senior level executives and, and the, the so expectations, if you look at it doesn't have to be a for-profit company, but let's assume that it is. It's a a shareholder-owned company. Shareholders don't want to wait years for results. And and so the pressure to perform is is, um, ratcheted up for C-level people compared to what it used to be. There was always, you always had to perform. It's just, it's it's an additional ratchet or two from what it was, in my opinion, historically. The other thing that, that's happened is that um, jobs have gotten much, businesses have gotten much more complex. There are all kinds of regulations on businesses. There's all kinds of requirements for international trade and international operations. And you can go down the list of how businesses have gotten more complex. A business will make a a major investment, a a major investment in capital technology, and they'll figure that that investment is going to see them through for the next 10 years. And, And in two years, it's no longer leading edge and they've got to replace it. And so that creates a financial pressure and it creates a pressure to introduce new technology into an organization and not overwhelm people. And so um, being in the C-suite is is tougher than it ever was. And so um, if you're up for the challenge, go for it. You know, and again, I, I would argue that you get there the same way. You, you do self-development, you, you perform um, above and beyond you distinguish yourself with performance and um, you ask other people along the way to help you stand on the shoulders of those who came before you. And, and I, I found if you're not a jerk, I, I, probably a nicer way to say that than in this interview. But if you're not a jerk and you ask people to help you and they're good people, nobody ever turns you down. And so it's about seeing that you can ask and asking the right people and you've earned the right to ask because you haven't been a political animal just trying to advance your career. Right. You've been a resource to that organization. You've tried to make sure that manager or that leader has their goals met, the ones that you can influence. And, and they're almost always willing to help when you can when you do that. Mark, you know, we've got different people listening and um you know, you and I were talking uh, beforehand about the differences in generations and are those real? And uh, I think sometimes we make too much of, uh, about them. I mean, for example, I know we I can't remember millennials or what age is Gen X, Gen Y. So I'm standing in front of somebody. It's like, let me see, are they a Gen X or a Gen Y? And for me, it gets real simple. It's, I have two, two, just two distinctions before and after the Beatles. So I look at them and go, do they know who the Beatles were? Great. And that's that's as, that's as sophisticated as I can get. But there's more to it, obviously. And I know that. Uh, nope, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you see all that stuff playing um, out with management and uh, and people being successful? Um, for sure, there are some differences. And, and I, I'll take a, a, a shot at, at you know being able to list some of those off um but there are fewer differences than we think and and so i I, i'm today fortunate i'm coaching people who are millennials 
They're in management roles, senior management roles. They're millennials. And by the way, millennials do go up to age 38, I think. Wow. Starts at 23 and goes to 38. Listen to you. So um, it, it varies. It's whoever's book you read, right? Okay. Um, but but the point is, at least in the mid-30s. So I'm coaching millennials, and they are managing people in their organization in their 60s and 70s. And of course, I'm doing the opposite. I, I'm coaching leaders, senior level executives that are in their 60s and some even in their 70s that are trying to run an organization that has a bunch of millennials in it, including in middle management positions. And, and so um, the one thing I've learned from that, plus all the available research, um, the one thing I've learned is that our differences are not as significant as each side makes them out to be. So uh, let me deal with each side. Please. So, so the older executive often thinks with a bias that the younger people today don't have the same values. Of course. Okay. They don't want to work hard. <laughs> they, they do, for sure, they don't want to work overtime. You know, they're not nearly as committed because they see they see somebody who wants a more balanced life. You know, senior executives that are old always talked about work-life balance and quality of time spent with their children. And, and all of us failed miserably at that. Okay. And, and the generations that were our kids and our grandkids watched us fail at that. And now that they're in the workforce, they say, I'm not going to make that same mistake. So it isn't that they're less committed. They're commi more committed to that work-life balance. That doesn't mean that when they're working, they're not committed to quality and productivity and doing a good job and all of those kind of things. And so some of those built in biases that the older generation has, you know, are wrong. And when you do the flip, the flip is that the younger people in management often think, oh, and by the way, going back to that, the older manager or leader managing young people, and he goes, and they don't want to come to work. They'll work, but they want to work from home. What's this? If I can't see them, how do I know they're working? Okay, so there's a whole bunch of telecommuting and, and virtual employees and contract employees and all of that that make up the new workforce. And that's not necessarily bad, but it is assumed to be necessarily bad by a number of the more senior, more more mature people in senior leadership. They, they, they know they have to put up with it because it's the labor force that's available. Okay, and it's tight labor market, but they don't like it. We flip that now and you have young executives, you know, call them millennials if you want, you know, those mid thirties or late thirties. Um, and they're managing people in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, and they automatically have a bias. Again, I'm broad brushing, not everybody does, but often they have a bias that says, gee, that guy is so uh, in over his head, or he only he, he won't consider any new ways of doing it. Um, yeah, it it's, we've always done it this way. Is there truth to that? Sure, there's some truth to it. You know, and any stereotype has some truth to it. But the vast majority of people I work with, if you can show them a better way that's more effective, more profitable, more efficient, whatever that more is, they'll go, OK, I'm willing to do that. Um, and, and so part of the, the real challenge today is to break down those biases that, that aren't always based in fact. Okay, there's some stereotypical stuff and, and it, it, there's a, a, a whole bunch of opportunity. And, and by the way, 
Um, another message, uh, the online program deals with that. It has subject, adder, subject matter expert documents in it that deal with emotional intelligence, managing from a distance, leading a multi-generational workforce, all of those challenges that anybody in a new management role of any age or experience is facing today during a, 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 an onboarding experience in most organizations. Mark, you've had uh, many successes, and uh, which I'm glad of. And I do want to ask you, I don't know if you would like to talk about it. Is there any failure that stands out, but really not uh, just kind of uh, announce it as so much as to what did you learn from that failure? And uh, how might that help the audience that's listening? By the way, I'll, I'll answer that, but okay. a quick aside. Yeah. And that is, I, I said that executive recruiting gave me a, a real window on the development of middle managers, not just senior leaders, but middle managers, because I my candidate slates always had some talented middle manager that was ready to take the next step up. And what you see in the assessment of talent in too many organizations is you see very minimal time allocated to an interview process. You, you see very surface level, e even when they, they have a recruiting organization, either internal or external, you, you see um, a 40 minute interview looking at the person's resume and saying, well, I see that you did this and I see it. And guess what? The resumes are either professionally written or they're not. <laughs> You know, and both of those are a problem as far as I'm concerned. All right. And the other thing is the resumes are always written as an advertisement. You know, it's like lose 40 pounds in three weeks. Well, the resume says I did this. I achieved these results and I did it in 18 months on this job. And, and so the resume is a whole bunch of positive statements about the candidate with no exploration of um Tell me one. So you talked about all your successes. Talk to me about a, fa a failure and talk to me about not just the failure, but how you recovered from it. Mm. OK, um, you said you were in this job for three years. How did you handle the responsibility in the second year and the third year any differently than you did in the first year? What did you learn? And from what you learned, what did you do differently? Um, one of the questions I always love to ask, I wanted to get at teamwork and a uh, participative leader. I would ask a person, I'd say, tell me the most significant thing you ever accomplished. And they would start to answer. And I'd say, that was not your idea. And you would watch people sit there and get sweat on their cheeks and sweat on their upper lip, trying to think of the most significant thing they've ever accomplished as a, as a leader of people, okay, that was not their idea. And the person who would be the winner in terms of getting through that evaluation step and often getting the job would say, well, there was this one, there was this one. No way. I know the one. And I'd say, I don't want to know what it was. I want to know why, as you went through that list of mentally uh, of the accomplishments that were not your idea, why was this one the best one? And the person gets a broad smile on their face and, and, and he or she says, well, because my team, when they when they told me the idea, I, I didn't think it was workable and I didn't think it was anywhere near as good as how I would do it. You know, if I were just imposing my idea on them, but I knew that they would own it. And so I gave them some ideas on how they could go back and rework it. And they came back two or three times and I finally went with it. And it wasn't as good as mine. My, I still believe that wasn't as good as mine, but it was better 
because they owned it. And because they owned it, they were going to make it a roaring success. And he said, so that's why it was the best one. Stay with us for a moment. So again, for people in the middle, what, is, what are the lessons that you learned as an executive recruiter? So you'd been with the big, some national, you know, you'd been a, uh, an executive in some of the bigger ones for, for some time. What's the biggest lesson that you'd want to take away if you were talking to somebody? Uh, um, I, I would want them to be prepared for the stuff they're not prepared for. Because all the preparation that goes into interview prep is about your asset stories, your successes and what I did and all of that. And and in today's world, um, if it's more about teamwork, I want to know. So I'll go to the sports analogy. So if Michael Jordan has a 50 point game during his career, but his team loses, it's still a loss. And so, yes, Michael Jordan could tell me I scored 50 points. But if I was looking for somebody that was going to be a team player and cause the team to win, that wouldn't have been a positive story for me. Hmm. I would wanted to know I'm from Cleveland. And so I watched LeBron James and LeBron James didn't always look to shoot and he didn't look for his own performance stats. What he looked for was what's the play where I can get somebody open? What's the play where I can make somebody else successful? How can I make my teammates better? And they went on to win a national championship. And, and so that's what you know, you're asking me what. So I, I would want somebody to, to think about the, the in between the lines on their resume. So when somebody's telling me, here's all the things I accomplished, I want to know what was challenging about that. I want to know what you had to overcome. So if somebody's in a sales position and they've got a brand new product with all kinds of marketing support and it's competitively priced and they say, we doubled market share. Well, hell, you ought to have doubled market share. But if somebody's in a sales management position, they came in and they took over and they've got an out of touch sales force that has to be rebuilt. They don't have a good market reputation. They've got an aged product and, and, and I can go down the list. And if they, and if before that person got there, they'd been losing market share successively each year for the last three or four years. And, and this person in the one year stopped the loss of market share. They only grew market by two or 3%, but that was a miracle. And so if my client is looking for somebody who can do that, it's not if my client's looking for somebody who can take a new product and run with it with a huge marketing campaign, that person's right on. If somebody has these other challenges, that's the person whose resume isn't going to tell me that because they're not going to put, I only grew market share by 2%. Right. So they're going to say, I grew market share. Well, I want to know in a horrendous situation, I, I made the best of it. So I, I always wanted people to, I, I wanted to get to know people. I, if, I, if I had to put my reputation on the line and recommend somebody to my client, I wanted to interview the person not for 40 minutes, I wanted to interview them for two hours. And I wanted to keep peeling back and peeling back and saying, if you told me you have, in the case of a senior level executive, nine years of strategic planning experience, and in fact, run a strategic offsite, you know, every year for the nine years, I'd say, how's it different in, not in year nine than year one? 
and person, the right person gets a smile on their face and says, well, the first year I ran it, then I realized that wasn't a good use. But, and they, and they, they go through, what did I learn along the way? Yeah. So I haven't avoided your question of minutes ago where you said, Mark, was there a failure that you learned from along the way? Okay. And that answer is very simple. I came out of the GE environment where they had new manager assimilation and down the road, I wind up as an executive search consultant. And because I got trained as what, what am I going to do as an executive search consultant? There was no onboarding support part of that training. It was transactional. It's you find a candidate slate, put the candidates in front of your client, have your client hire one of them and move on to the next one and check in with the, the placement and the client to see how they're both doing after a month. Well, I did that for my first year of executive recruiting. Then I realized the mistake I was making. The mistake I was making was because I, I started to watch even the best of the best people that I found and put into organizations. Some of them experienced those common missteps and mistakes. And I'm saying, boy, if I had provided some kind of support or if, if I had made sure that the client provided some kind of support that would help guide that person for the first three to six months, those things wouldn't have happened. N nobody failed, thankfully, in that first year. But after that, I made that part of my executive search practice. One, it was a differentiator for me. Um, and, and two, it, even more important, it was it made sure people who I said, go into this role, you're going to be successful and it's going to be great for you and your family and your career. And what I said to the client is this person's going to help you meet those business expectations that your, your board has or, or whatever. And then to help make sure that happened was um, as meaningful and as fulfilling as any thing I've ever done. And that's why I continue to do it. It's something you have a passion for. That's clear. Mark, we've covered a lot of ground, but is there anything that um, we didn't talk about that uh, you wanted to make sure that we addressed? And uh... um, I guess I would end it with this. There is a um, quote that I, I heard some years ago, and I don't know who it's attributed to, so let's call it anonymous. And the quote is, it may be lonely at the top, but it sucks in the middle. And, and, and so my, my advice to the listening audience would be if you're in a position where you're above middle level managers and you're responsible for their development, and if you're responsible, don't let it suck for the managers in your organization that are in the middle. And if you're one of those managers in the middle, don't accept that some people say it sucks in the middle. You don't have to let it suck in the middle. I never let it. And, and so that's be, be in charge of your own career. Hopefully your corporation or your business will be also. It'll be a partnership. But at a minimum, again, I said it earlier, there's no more assured development than self-development. And self-development doesn't just mean taking a course or buying an online video. It could be any of those things. But it's also that I want to I want to learn more. So I was I, uh, one last comment. I was a human resources person. And early in my career, I would go into the general manager of the business. Now, I didn't report to the general manager. I was way down in the organization. I'd go into the general manager and I said, you know, I'd, I'd like some of your time. We can schedule it or right now. And I'd like to have you tell me about the business. I'd like to know about its strategy. I'd like to know. And, and he'd say, you're in human resources. Why in the world do you want to know that? And I said, because... <laughs> 
Well, I, I, I won't take the insult, okay? But um, I think I need to know it. And I did need to know it. Because if I was going to, uh, over time, get to the point where I was going to be coaching senior executives, even within a, the environment of a GE, and I did, I did those new manager assimilation sessions and other things like that, um, career development sessions, all of that kind of stuff, I had to know about business. And, and so um, it was about my own personal commitment to wanting to be the best I could be. I, I knew that, that might sound trite as a way to end. So I'll go back to the statement. If it does suck in the middle, don't let it. If you're responsible for people in the middle, don't let it suck for them. Give them all these development things I've talked about that I was fortunate enough to be part of. Okay. Um, if you're in the middle, try to make sure that your, your situation provides those kind of experiences for you. Don't think about just staying, if, you, if you've got a corporation, don't think about just staying in that business. Think about how can I move to other businesses within that corporation? How can I improve this thing that is a resource by, by, by being proactive? So the, that's the advice I would give. Mark, I really appreciate your time, um, your thoughtful comments, your stories. And uh, I'm unusually quiet. I'm just thinking about everything that you said and as usual, very, very insightful. Thank you so much.